$227 billion. That's the size of the New York State fiscal year 2024 executive budget as reported in the 30-day amended financial plans released March 8th. This is a pivotal time for New York. The economic outlook is uncertain with a possible recession and a future economy that will be shaped by remote work in ways we still cannot predict. We have a precarious state budget that goes from riches to rags, with an $8 billion cash surplus this year, but out-year gaps over $7 billion and a $12 billion structural gap. New Yorkers have real needs, including more housing development and more affordability, and there are many demands on our elected leaders. Despite New York having some of the highest taxes and spending rates in the nation by far, various constituencies want to spend and some even want to tax billions and billions more. I'm Andrew Ryan, the president of the Citizens Budget Commission. Thanks for joining us for this episode of What's the Data Point, which will again feature a recording of one of our live events. Today we hear from State Budget Director Bob Megna. Bob was generous enough to spend a while talking about the state budget on his 10th day on the job. His 10th day on the job. Fortunately for all of us, Bob is no stranger to his task. He previously was budget director from 2009 to 2015, and his experience is broad and deep. He was president of the Rockefeller Institute of Government, senior vice chancellor and chief operating officer of SUNY's system administration, senior vice president for finance and administration of SUNY Stony Brook, executive director of the New York State Thruway Authority and Canal Corporation, and commissioner for the New York State Department of Taxation and Finance. And yes, there is more, but I'll stop there. So please listen as Bob discusses the current fiscal status, budget negotiation, and he shares his ever thoughtful view of how New York makes these challenging decisions and how they might make them this year. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And until next time, take care, New York. So Andrew asked me how we should do this as a chat or presentation. And I said, I haven't been there long enough to do a presentation, Andrew, so. And then I asked him, you know, is there anything I, I shouldn't ask? Because you have, he's like, I'll just say, if I haven't got there, I figure the big things you better be getting a handle on, hopefully. Oh, thank you, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, I no, so. I mean, seriously, and, and I, I've, thank you personally. I mean, I think we all owe you a debt of gratitude because this is a really, this is a tough time. It's a tough budget. Um, and the fact that you took this time um, to come see us is, you know, really wonderful. Really appreciate. It. We'll thank you even more when you produce an on-time great budget. Um, or as in Albany, when did the word timely start happening? That that you know, Albany, you know, pretending that it was on time. You know, I showed the governor a chart yesterday that I had folks do for me because people, you know, first of all, I'm old, right? So I go back to when we didn't do budgets on time. In fact, I think I was budget director for the latest budget of in history. Um, but, you know, it's been 12, 14 years since we've really had a late budget. I mean, we've been a week late or a few days late, but not significantly late. And I think the interesting part of it is, I think it's come, people have come to a realization that the late budgets really didn't gain them that much in the end on either side, the legislative side or the state side. And people have gotten used to it, but we are in a unique period right now. So, we start big picture in terms of a unique period. Um, we have a rocky economy. We don't know what'll happen potentially with the recession. And we'll talk about your revenue estimates in a second so we can understand them better. We have, we don't know what the economy looks like after remote work and what that means, especially here in New York for our, our downtowns and, and certainly for the tax base. We have a fiscal situation that sometimes we talk about rags to riches. We're in riches to rags. You have a seven to eight billion dollar, you know, surplus this year and seven point two billion dollar gap in twenty seven, and which rests on another five billion of non recurring revenue. So let's call that a twelve billion dollar problem if you go out four years. Which is so. How? What's the general approach to dealing with the uncertainty, the fiscal problems, but New Yorkers' real needs? Well, there's no answer to that question, Andrew. In the in, but I think, look, I think 
every budget situation or crisis or coming out of a crisis is unique. So for me to say we're in particularly unique time now is kind of crazy, but I do think it is because we all know this in this room because you're all smart people who are dealing with this every day. But, you know, the state of New York lived through a recession that never happened, right? In terms of the state budget, because COVID was a horrible thing and exacted a horrible cost in New York in terms of people's lives and their health but it didn't slow down tax receipt growth that much because people adapted to it. And so um, my predecessor who got out in time, um, who's <laughs> a wonderful person, Robert Mujica, who I'm sure you all know, Robert is a friend and a colleague, you know, short 18 months ago, put out a New York state budget that had no out year gaps in it, yes. which the state of New York hasn't ever done, I don't think, as long as we've been publishing gaps. And why was that possible? It was possible because when people were going in and living through COVID, we all thought the revenue picture and other things were gonna drop off a cliff. You know, they really didn't. And then in fact, the economy started to do actually pretty well. And so revenue came in and so surpluses on the state side started to actually build up by a significant amount. So the recession everyone was waiting for kind of never happened. And now we're in a situation, well, maybe it's gonna happen now. Now's when the economy is gonna slow down. And so you're in this kind of very weird situation for like, I think the first time that I can remember where you kind of planned for a recession that didn't happen. So you built up a little bit of reserves during that process. Now the economy is slowing down and you're gonna go into a recession. Plus you still have all that Andrew alluded to it all the after effects of COVID, like are people coming into Manhattan? Are they going into the office? So you still have all of that going on. Um, and now your tax receipts are, you know, starting to slow down, you know, pretty dramatically. So you went from having no gaps to now the budget division. I think it's the place I work now says that the gaps will be $10 billion roughly in two years. So you went from zero to negative 10 in the space of 18 months. And um, so it's a really unique kind of period of time. And it's a hard place to manage. And I'm sure if we had Jacques Jiha, the city budget director here, he'd say the same thing, which is, you have some one-time money, you have some reserves that we don't expect at all to be recurring that you know, we have, which we're trying to manage in a fiscally conservative way or a reasonable way. Not, I wouldn't even go as far as conservative, I'd say reasonable way to manage those reserves. As the economy starts to slow down, um, which is, I think, um, kind of a, you know, a hard place to navigate for executives, right? I think it's hard for the governor and it's hard for the mayor because people see a little bit of money. They don't see the economy slowing down. They don't see that if you're making commitments today that you're not going to be able to pay for tomorrow because that money can quickly vanish on you. So it's like catnip, right? You know, it's it's just sitting there waiting waiting to be spent. Now, the budget, you know, that you have now inherited, um, this year's budget, when you adjust for timing and off-budget shifts, increased 12%, which is pretty stunning because, because of all that money that, that had been built up and 21 was a heck of a year and you roll that over and everything. And the budget proposed is 
4.3% a year growth throughout the financial plan. And uh, as you probably argue with that, Andrew, yeah. but that's okay. Okay. We'd say it's a little less than that. Yes, 3.4, 4.3, it just depends. Um, but so now I, I you know, Patrick Arrecki, our director of state studies, who you all know, I asked for the list and I stopped counting, but the legislature, you know, so that's a challenge. As you mentioned, you have $10 billion. The legislature has on its list $2.8 billion for child care, $2 billion for child tax credit, $1 billion more from the MTA, for the MTA, uh, in addition to what the governor has talked about, um, $5 billion social housing, $500 million public renewals, $10 billion for climate. I'll stop at the $21 billion. How do you hold the line given this, you know, the as I called it, the budgetary cabinet? How does that work? What's that dynamic? Well, first of all, I don't even think that's the right counting anymore because they're going to come out this week with new. I know that's why we had it fr Friday, because I, 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 if we did it Monday, I'd have to add up a whole new thing. You'd have to scrape me off the floor. Um, no, they're going to put out bills. For those of you who don't know the process in New York, um, the legislature puts out um, their view of what the budget should be. They pass bills, but bills are, it's irrelevant because they cannot pass bills on the budget until they act on the governor's budget. Long fought, you know, important power that the governor in New York State has. Um, and so they put out their resolutions. That's how to think about them. And those resolutions usually contain significant, as you would expect, significantly more spending than is in the executive budget. And I'm sure they will total what Andrew is talking about, if not more. How do you navigate it? Well, I think, first of all, you know, you have to have some realism about what we just talked about. Where's the economy going? What can we reasonably expect? You know, where can we use a one-time resource to our advantage as opposed to building spending on a recurring basis that is only gonna hurt us in future years? And so are there ways to use creatively and, and prudently um, some of the one-time resources that we have, um, which the governor does propose using some of them that way, um, you know, to great effect. And I think, you know, I was talking to folks before um, the, we got here formally, um, and I think that's what we need to do is we need to work with the healthcare industry, we need to work with the MTA, we need to work in all of those areas where there is specifically more demand for resource to come up with creative ways to keep ourselves in fiscal, you know, in good fiscal shape. And so you talked before about the reserves, and I agree they should be more. On the other side, you've been around a long time. It's pretty tremendous how much has been put in the reserves. More should be in the rainy day fund than in other kind of unlocked boxes. Um, although last year the governor proposed, and there was some strengthening uh, of the structure of the, of the rainy day fund, and this year the proposal is even better. I want to, I'll follow up after, because whoever was honchoing that at DOB or whatever that actually wanted to do that, I want to call them. Amazing. Really, really good stuff. How do you, but that's the, that's where people want to spend that money on the one time. Because if you do, as you said, creative ways to use one time that can satisfy some needs, um, address some, um, you know, um, different, both substantive and political issues, but you need those reserves. You need, you need them. You need the plan is to get to 19, 20 billion. You might need 30 billion, but certainly if you're sitting here at 10 and accelerating another 10, you don't want to give those up. No, absolutely not. And it's the fiscal planning unit within the budget division that I think came up with the ways to manage the reserves. We'll Work, call them after. Working with the budget director, you can thank Robert. I mean, he was responsible for, for that. But no, they have a strong we, we, have a strong fiscal planning unit. The folks that put the nuts and bolts of the budget together for the governor. And 
that's a very strong unit and their main concern is the financial health of the state, not for one year or two years, but for multiple years. And while the city, and I think um, folks here probably know this, while the city has more uh, because of the fiscal crisis in the late 70s and into the early 80s has more structural requirements for how they talk about their out year financial plan. I think it's more the state is just good practice because the governor wants it to be good practice. And so I think this governor does want it to be good fiscal practice and, you know, has asked the folks at budget to give her, you know, a smart use of these resources over time, especially as we, again, I don't wanna um, emphasize it too much, but I think it's incredibly important. I, I have lived through situations where if the economy goes into recession, I don't care how many reserves you have on hand, they disappear very quickly. And so to Andrew's point, while we would probably be okay with selective use of the reserves to accomplish things that need to be accomplished, we also recognize, the governor first of all recognizes that she needs those reserves to manage the out years. You know, legislatures tend to focus on the year we're in. And, you know, governors are forced to focus on the longer term. And the governor is really the only statewide elected who really has a statewide view of finances as opposed to a more parochial view of finances. Though I'm sure the leaders in the Senate and Assembly would not agree with that. Um, and we're working closely with them. But I think that's the balancing. Yeah. You know, navigate where we are, creatively and selectively use one-time money for one-time actions, make those investments count so that you can reduce growth in the out years, and then make sure the legislature does not engage in significant base spending adds to the budget that would make your make your situation worse. The governor, I mean, the two big buckets are obviously education aid and Medicaid. Governor has proposed, and it's not that different from things we've talked about. We've talked about a health system transformation team, and she's talked about a Medicaid. I can't remember the title in, in this year's budget. Other states have put some teeth into those, and they've been effective, actually. I mean, we, we can all discount task forces that are performative, but there actually have been some national efforts. How can this be something? Because, listen, we need to provide quality care to people who need it without busting the budget. And right now, under the new global cap and on the projections, and we'll see what happens with people coming off the rolls with the, with the emergency going away, Medicaid's going to – we can't sustain it. So what are the ways that we, we can build in some structure to that, to that to try to really restrain costs without really hurting the safety net or services? Well, I noticed you mentioned school aid, but then skipped right no, to no, health care. Don't um, worry, I'm coming back to it. Uh, but I think, you know, I'd start with school aid because here's what I would say. Um, the legislature and the executive have essentially solved, I'm going to say, the school aid issue in New York State. People may not like the way that was solved, but it was solved in the sense that I think you have a formula for the first time in many, many, many years that people feel delivers school aid to the districts where it belongs at levels for which it belongs. And some may think that that's too much or too generous or significant, but I think in New York State, it's basically a done issue area. Around fringes, can things be done? 
with school aid and with you know things like pre-K and stuff like that, yes. And I'm sure there will be lots of proposals, but I think the core of K through 12, and I, I show how old I am by saying K through 12 instead of PE through 12, but um, I think K through 12 education has kind of been resolved largely. I, I hear you. We have pointed out that $3.1 billion of state education aid, in line with the formula, goes to high wealth districts that already self-fund uh, sound basic education. The way the formula works, it kind of has a theoretical amount. And if they fund more, the state still gives them more. So it's $3 billion. And Which is why you have a formula yes. that people are okay with. But so here's the deal, though. Solving it and having those gaps seem to be logically inconsistent. That's the challenge. Of I hear course. I hear you on what you're saying. And they saw the CFE case, and I you know, worked in this area for a few years earlier in my career. But the challenge is solving it when you can't afford it isn't like a very satisfying in the long run solution. No, but here's what I would say. I would say, but that's all built into our financial plan, right? I mean, we have, so it, I would say more, that's a choice that both the governor and the legislature made. And so what I think is often the case in budget making is that was a choice that was made. It's not independent then of the other choices that you have to make because you've dedicated a significant amount of money to that area. It clearly constrains what you can do in other areas, especially, you know, states, like New York, you know, we we have we're constitutionally mandated to propose a, a balanced budget and then to manage an enacted budget to make it balance. And so I think I'm not disagreeing with you, Andrew. What I'm saying is these are policy choices that I think both the courts, the legislature, and the governor have decided this is what we're going to do. So now it presents a challenge for the rest. For you're everything. exactly right. I mean, and, and as we talked about, and everyone here, talking, you know, it all comes out of one pot. So you have to have priorities. You got to decide what you're going to fund. You're probably going to want to use those dollars to actually have an impact. And then, so that brings us a little back to Medicaid, because that's the biggest part of the rest of the pot, which is a real challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially now and the and I was talking to some folks um, before we came in here um, who have a significant interest in the healthcare side of the world you know the thing I'd say there is we're also living there in a very rapidly changing world I mean even very different from when I last had this job of you know it seems like a gazillion years ago, but not really that long ago. So I think the pressures on different sectors of the healthcare industry are presenting unique problems right now. And that goes all the way from, you know, how do you pay people in the healthcare industry, especially those who are doing, you know, the hardest menial jobs in that industry who are usually not paid very much above minimum wage, all the way to the hospital providers who are living in a changing environment where, you know, a lot of the ways we traditionally provide healthcare are changing and much less is being done in hospitals and more being done in other places. And that puts significant pressure on traditional providers. And so we get it. There's a significant problem there that has to be addressed. I think what I would say is any investments, I, I'm gonna sound like a broken record today. The investments that we make and any that would be added in the budget process should at least be a down payment on 
future ways to find savings or to change the structure to be more realistic to what the future of healthcare in New York actually is. And that's going to be hard and people are going to struggle with that. But I think we can't just fill the gap, go away, because next year we'll be here and someone else will be here saying <laughs> how, you know, we can't do that again. So I think the governor is determined, I think, to at least have that conversation. No, no one's going to fix it in a single budget, right? But how do we make investments? How do we convince the legislature to make investments or to start a process that tries to get to some rational future in healthcare? Because what we're doing now, you know, cannot work long term or even short term, quite honestly. And, and yeah, so. In the big picture frame, I mean, one of the things the governor has talked about, it was great to hear her, was it a theme part of our state of the state? I'm forgetting now. In terms of New York's competitiveness, um, the way CBC has in part thought about it is probably it's our, our competitiveness is threatened for residents and businesses maybe any time more than since the fiscal crisis. And I think the pandemic showed businesses, individuals, they could have a good quality of life. They could make money elsewhere. And that's not a great case. We've got to keep on making the case. And the governor's talked about this. She talked about holding the line on personal income tax this year, but of course, proposed extending the business um, tax surcharge. What do you think we need to be doing to improve our competitiveness over time? And how big a deal is taxes? I think taxes are always a big deal, but not in the way people traditionally think about them. I think taxes are a big deal, not because they change people's behavior in a week, but because they change people's behavior a year from now or two years from now or five years from now. And so I think the governor would love to be in a situation where she could, you know, be in a place where you know, she could provide some opportunity on the tax side to to limit the tax burden. And I think she recognizes that how it can have a detrimental impact on the economy. And that's a long term impact. I mean, you can go back to the last time we had a significant fiscal crisis in New York, forgetting even 2007 to 2012 and go back to, you know, the fiscal crisis in the 70s. Um, and something I, um, I shouldn't say in this group, but, you know, I'm sure we have some people who work in the, you know, banking and security sector. I, I don't think anyone, there was a book I love um, written by some Cornell um, economists that came out in 1980. Some of you may have heard of it, but probably not. It's called, it was called Crisis in the Making. And it was a 300-page diatribe about how the state had ignored its fiscal responsibilities. And everything that had happened was fairly predictable. Um, and the future was so bleak because upstate New York was supporting New York City. People believed that at that time. You people in the audience are all too young. You believe it today. You're all too young. People actually believed that back then. And that, that these guys thought, brilliant guys, they, they had lots of analysis. They had millions and millions of charts and it was beautifully written and 100% wrong. <laughs> and you know they did not see what was gonna happen over the next 30 years in New York. 
And I, I always tell the young, my young students when I have them that if you want to know what the fiscal situation was like in New York, don't go to any book or anything. Rent the French Connection or watch the French Connection to get a sense of what New York City was going through in that period of time. And, you know, I think they were totally wrong. And that's because no one predicted what was going to happen in the finance sector and New York becoming a global leader. No one saw what was going to happen to media. No one saw what was going to talk about health care, that the health care sector was going to be such a dominant sector within the city. They were still talking about the fact that, you know, bakeries were closing. And so, and manufacturing was leaving the city. And that was people's vision then. I think we're in a similar period now where we don't see where the other side of this is really headed, especially in an area like healthcare. And so I think we're all struggling to figure, to answer your question, to figure out what are the right investments to be made now that lower the cost curve and that, you know, get us to the other side of the reforms we all need, you know, to have. And plus we have an aging population. That aging population requires significant health care. That's not changing as an older person. I know that's not going to change. <laughs> and, um, and I think people are really struggling in the healthcare area to figure out, you know, where we should be going and how we should be financing it and where the state should be putting its money um, most profitably. And I think that's ongoing. And we could talk for hours. I'd revive our first conversation when I came back into this job when you were SUNY talking about. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> And we're all at SUNY today, so thanks for having us. Um, and Madam Chair, I know I need a haircut. I haven't had time to go. I know, I know. But I, 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 but I will say that, so the conversation we had was about how important higher education and the connections throughout the state were, community colleges, senior colleges, and businesses were to the future, because we don't know where we're going. Well, we kind of know that our value of human capital and some uh, and physical infrastructure is critical to everything. And, and that's, you know, kind of getting the basics right. And that's where CBC's focus on the basics, whether it be MTA capital or, or other, rather than shiny new toys, because we get caught up and then we let the basics go. I, I know there are plenty of questions. I want one last question before we open it up. The governor's housing proposal. I'm going to recuse myself on higher ed issues, but um, a little bit. But um, uh, mustard for you. SUNY is a wonderful asset of the state of New York, and so is CUNY. And so we um, we um, we need to be investing in those. And I think the governor's proposals um, were made a significant investment in SUNY for exactly the reason you just outlined, um, Andrew. So, I mean, that's important, uh, it's critical. And look, that is our advantage. We have wonderful SUNY and CUNY systems. We have a wonderful private sector system in New York. It's probably the envy of most states. And, you know, the future of economic development is largely driven by your higher ed sector. So it's critically important. The governor has a pretty broad and, and impressive housing set of housing proposals. Housing compact, I won't go through all the details. Transit-oriented development, lifting the FAR cap, speeding environmental reviews in some cases. A lot of stuff that we've talked about and frankly synergistic with some of the stuff the mayor is doing. This is, this is good stuff. Of course, there's a challenge because maybe there are a couple of other pieces that are as part of what might be a housing big ugly if I can't come up with a better word, like, you know, the current form of good cause eviction, which I would characterize as universal rent stabilization and, and other things. Um, how do you see that playing out? 
You know, on the policy side, I don't know. I mean, I'd be lying to you if I, I told you where that was going. It is an incredibly important priority to the governor. And I think it's one of those areas where I think she's going to demand progress as part of any budget solution. Now, her housing program, while incredibly comprehensive and detailed, is not really an enormous fiscal issue, no, right? It's, a, it's really a policy um, turn. But I mean, I think she knows, I think she's well aware, and I think everyone in this room is probably aware of the kinds of issues you confront when you're talking about a statewide housing kind of program and investment that, you know, and I think she would object. I don't know if you said it. She objects to the, only because she's told me, the affordable housing. I mean, she sees this as a spectrum of housing development statewide from, you know, higher end housing all the way down to lower end housing. So I think this is not like a monolithic view of housing. I think she's trying to take a very comprehensive view. We all know that when you take a comprehensive view in any issue area, that then there are lots of people who are gonna be unhappy with certain parts of that. But I think that's really, you know, what her focus is on is, look, if we're going to make New York competitive, then part of making New York competitive is having housing that, you know, is meeting the needs of its citizens from the low end all the way to the high end. Well, she's exactly right. Uh, you know, on that, there's always devil in details on the incentives, on conversion, all that kind of stuff. She's exactly right. Um, you've been gracious enough to... Um, stay for a little while for questions from our trustees. So I will uh, look around and see uh, um, see people catching my eye or raising their hand. Since it's a classroom, I see Steve Berger, um, e either who's auctioning and trying to bid or asking a question. Go ahead, Steve. I, I got to come back to Medicaid, Bob, because I, I'm I'm really concerned. I'm concerned partly because time counts, and before we blink, we'll be you know through the first year of the of the governor's term. And I'm concerned about the Medicaid, both in terms of, of policy and money. I think that where we are now, we think we're spending a lot of money. If I look at what's going on, funding the silos, and you know what I mean, the silos, and making healthcare decisions based on politics as healthcare politics and politics politics, as opposed to delivery, we have a mediocre system. And, and unless we start doing some of this stuff now, She'll be halfway through her term before anything happens, and we got this legislature to deal with. We're funding an incompetent uh, long-term care system. We're funding we're funding hospitals where upstairs should be closed. Nobody wants to go upstairs; they want the downstairs. Uh, and we've got no policy. I mean, the, the the mere fact in Brooklyn, which I have some interest in, that we have this bizarre takeover attempt of Maimonides from. Uh, uh, by, by people I will not characterize in a room of 100 people, uh, is, is a sign that there's no real health policy going on either at the department or on the second floor. And so we, there's got to be major movement now because your, your successor is going to be facing a much worse Medicare, Medicaid problem in the next two or three years. And how do we get there with this legislature and without this being so the, the fundamental task of this administration? Well, I would say I agree with about three quarters of that. I agree it's, a, it's, a, it's probably the significant policy issue on the money side. I think the part I disagree with a little bit, and I had some conversations with folks today, I think the governor does want to try to think it through. And I think the people, some of the people she's brought in on the healthcare side want to try to get to the other side here or what the right reforms are. But you're absolutely right. The political environment in which to do that is incredibly complicated and filled with lots and lots of potholes 
potholes is probably the wrong word, you know, canyons of um, stuff to try to get through. So, you know, as I said to a few people before, I, I really want in the time that I'm doing this to invest a little bit in cultivating relationships with the second floor that could help the governor start to think na and navigate this. Because I do know she know I think she recognizes the problem the way you're raising it. So I don't think that's really the issue. I think the issue is all the other things of how you get from A to B to C in healthcare. Everyone gets stuck on A, right? They can't ever get to B. Okay. And listen, I I'm sounding like I'm new. Um, one Brooklyn started when I was budget director last time. And I wrote and I wrote a report which hit the wastebasket. So and I was at, you know, and you know, Ken's in the front row, and Ken and I talked about relationships between like, you know, hospitals, you know, when I was at that where's the chair? I have to be careful. I'm still at SUNY, right? Um, so when I was at SUNY, um, but no one, and I don't, you know, I don't think anyone even in the health department would argue, you know, Paul Francis is one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And I'm sure he'd be mad at me if I said this, but you know, He's been struggling with this too for now a decade or more, right? About what to do and how to do it. And, and he's a person who, you know, is only in this to try to figure out the right answer, right? For him, it's solely about what's the right public policy? What should we be doing? How can we fix Healthcare in New York State, Brooklyn in particular, is always at the center of the issue. So I think these things have existed for a long time. I think COVID and practice after COVID, but I defer to the medical folks we have in the group, has just taken some of those things and made them worse. And also exposed a lot of the problems of the system before Peter. Here. I can hear you actually. So because it's such a large item, I'd like to follow up on the questions on Medicaid. Uh, my understanding, and this is a question if it's correct, is that New York on a per capita basis is so off the charts, it's way in excess of even California, to say nothing of other states and an average of states. Is there is is that correct? And if so, can't one look at what they're doing in some of these other states and say that New York ought to just at least reduce its level of benefits, you know, or or make other changes to bring it in line with California and other states that are hardly harsh in their treatment of people? I would say a few things, I guess, but other people in the audience, I'm sure, would have a point of view on this. Yes, I believe that's true, and it's not true. It's been true for 40 years that we spend more on Medicaid per capita than other states. And every generation of, um, and, and a lot of it is because of the nature of the way we provide healthcare in New York State, and it's not real easy to transition, but let's, um, you know, if you think about us, I I like to tell a story about this. Um, when I was at SUNY, the um, folks there called me and said, we have a problem with the water, and this is downstate hospital. We have a problem with some water function in the hospital, and we need to go, um, we need to get shower heads um, that are of a special type. 
And they were calling me like this was a big expenditure item and would I approve it? And I asked them how many? And they said 50. And I said, go buy them at Walmart. I don't care, 50. The hospital was built in the late 70s. They're even in their maternity rooms, their shared rooms and shared showers. Who's going to that hospital who has a good insurance plan? And so it's a hospital that needs to be rebuilt like four or five other hospitals in Brooklyn that are providing services largely to a Medicaid and Medicare population, which is extremely expensive. The hospitals will tell you, I think there's some people in the front row, that what they get paid on Medicaid doesn't begin to cover the cost of providing service in that hospital. That has been a problem in New York literally for decades. Are there things we've done in the past? Yes. Um, I think when the prior governor was first elected, there was an effort to do a Medicaid, a Medicare and Medicaid restructuring. I think, again, I defer to the healthcare experts. I think it was partially successful in reducing costs and growth. And we started to move like those other states in the direction of saving significant amounts of money. But the pressures on the system um, have continued to grow and we haven't had the significant reform basically since then, I would argue that has changed, you know, what, you know what's been going on. So listen, I think people have been struggling with your question for a long time. I think, it's a unique situation in New York. And I think compared to those other states, I think we'd love to have some of those other states payer populations that we don't have in New York. Um, or we have, because I think we forget this about, we're unique in states in this way. California is probably the closest, but we are unique. We are a rich state and a poor state at the same time. And so we have a significant population of um, folks in need and underserved folks, I would say compared to any state in the country, which drives up cost. And then we have a very wealthy population, small, but, wealthy population that we say, okay, you pay for it. And that's the world we live in, in all issues. But I think in Medicaid and healthcare, it becomes even more acute. But you have a lot of experts but, but, uh, who may disagree with what I just said. But, but as you know, part of, our long, part of our longstanding problem has been generosity and our, our benefit on long-term care. And then of course, what the explosion going back to 2018, 19, home and community-based services. So there are differences. There are some things that we are outliers on. No, I, and yeah. I don't disagree with that. I think we are outliers in certain areas, but, and look, but again, part of that is ingrained in what yes. people have believed, right? Long-term care, listen, and by the way, to your point, and Andrew was good to raise it. We talk about hospitals and we talk about lots of things. Long-term care is probably still the most significant cost we spend on Medicare and Medicaid. It's enormous and it's significant. Again, I talked about school aid. I mean, I say this one more reluctantly, so no one in the room will hold me to it. You know, on school aid, a bargain was made that we talked about before. This is what we're going to do for schools, and this is how we're going to pay for it. I think in some ways, long-term care was the same thing in New York. We're going to agree to allow people to, you know, 
benefit from the system, middle-class people in New York to benefit from the system. And we're okay with that as a state. And so that drives a tremendous amount of cost. Other, Can we be more like other states? Yeah, we probably could. I think there is also a presumption in New York that no one does anything as well as we do it, and that's wrong. It's, it's just wrong. It's, it's interesting because I was looking, you know, New York state and localities per capita spend 46% more than the national average, 12% more than California, more than Connecticut, more than New Jersey, more than Massachusetts. But the assumption in New York is if we did anything like any of those, people must be like, you know, in horrible shape. But there is that kind of zeitgeist, which is a challenge. I saw Ed Cox. No, I, I, I worked in Virginia for two years. Um, when a former uh, Republican governor came into office, I, I lost my job then at the tax department and went to work, ironically, for a much more conservative Republican governor in Virginia at the time, George Allen Jr. And um, I had a similar job in Virginia than I had in that I had in New York at the time, which was like the director of their tax studies unit, which basically looked at tax policy and worked with the governor's office and the legislature. And you know, I learned, I think, a lot down there. To your point, it's there. Listen, they had the advantage of not having the Washington DC in Virginia, right? They had that advantage. And they had the advantage of having all of the federal government offices in Northern Virginia and the Navy out in Norfolk, right? So they had a lot of built-in advantages um, that New York doesn't have. Um, New York has other advantages they don't have. But that was, a, you know, I thought when I was there, an incredibly well-managed state. And um, I thought they, you know, in a lot of things, they did it the right way. I I've always been in the tax side of the world or occasionally, and the Virginia tax law, by the way, they have all, most of the same taxes New York has. They have a corporate tax, they have a personal income tax, they have a sales tax, they had, used to have this crazy license tax, which I think they've gotten rid of. Their um, tax law is a single volume this thick. New York's tax is three volumes with a pocket in the back of each one of them. <laughs> And when I got back to New York and was at the budget division, I would torture the tax department people with this. And I would say, you know, come on. And, you know, you, I'll tell you what their response to me was. We're much more litigious in New York State. And I never thought that was a great answer. <laughs> I think it's a partially true answer, but I don't think it was a great answer. So I don't wanna minimize that other states can do things better than we're doing it or that we can't learn from them. I think California, in fact, you mentioned them, are doing some things on the healthcare side, especially in association with, criminal, with the criminal justice and the incarcerated population that New York could be doing that would make some sense. And, and save some money. And I'm going to grab, Ed, you're going to make it quick, please. Given the governor's understanding of the need for reform in the budget, and on the other hand, a legislature that uh, is veto-proof and has other ideas, uh, what is the value of uh, the device that Governor Patterson created? I'll call the Patterson Extender. Well, the governor just puts her budget that she wants in the as the extended budget and uh, there's the legislature to uh, to take action or not take action with respect to it you know it's a great question i think every situation here's how i think about silver v pataki which is the usual code name we give to this because the former governor pataki fought 
in the courts with the legislature over the relative power of the governor versus the legislature with respect to the budget. And believe me, this goes back to before Governor Pataki to, it goes all the way back to when the executive budget process was put in place in New York in the 30s, because New York before that had a, a basically a system where the legislature controlled the budget process, not the governor. And it was, if people go back and read about that era, it was uh, not a good place for the state of New York to be at that time. And so it was seen as a major reform to put an executive budget process in place. Most states, in fact, many states, Virginia, which I just talked about, have similar relatively strong budget executive budget processes. And what does that mean? To, to Ed's point, it means that the legislature has to act. They cannot act independently until they have acted on the governor's budget. And, and that can't mean I'm just voting no on the entire budget. It, it does not mean that. It means they have to act on it. And what does act on it means? It means they have to pass it or they have to change it in a constitutionally acceptable way. The legislature has always felt that they cannot change it in a constitutionally acceptable way because the way they wanna add money, usually not subtract, they can cut anything out of the governor's budget. They can X anything out of the governor's budget and he has no ability to um, change that but they can only add to items that he or she, in this case, Governor Hochul, has outlined in her budget. So um, they can add to school aid, for example, they can write a new amount in, but they can't go in and say, we don't like the formula the governor used, so we're gonna change the formula and put an amount in. They can't do that. So they have, they can add an amount or they could subtract it. They hate that, right? So they hate the fact that they really are, and the courts for 70 years or more now have always almost entirely sided with the governor. That that's his power. That's how the constitution of the state when they changed it, they changed it in the state constitution. So those powers are very strong. Do you think that that's a strategy to land the plane? So I was very long-winded, I know. Why was I long-winded? Because it still depends, right? As, as I think Ed said, there, the legislature has veto, you know, they have veto override majorities in both houses. So they could go and say the governor put a budget on the table and just said, okay, take it or leave it. They could make ads. The governor has the right to veto those ads. They could override. I think, so the governor could choose to do that and she might choose to do that. Um, and she might use other versions of that power with the legislature. I think what's been clearer in the past, so what's the legislature's power in this? Well, they could override, but their other power is they can just refuse to act. And then what the governor could do is put an emergency bill. I don't want to get into the details. They, she could put like a one week or a two week or a five week budget on the table and that would keep state government operating. So there's all variations on that theme, but I think if the point was it's a different world when the legislature has a veto override majority, I think the answer to that is, yeah, it is. I mean, that's a different um, dynamic. The governor still has enormous powers, though, because the reason I did that long-winded explanation 
is because the legislature usually doesn't just want to change an amount. They usually want to change the how. And the governor still has that power and they don't want to just add an amount. They want to add an amount and change how it gets spent. They can't do that. And so the governor still has that power. And I don't think this governor would be afraid to use that power if she had to. Thank you. This was amazing. Gen your generosity of coming down of your time today. Um, let us always know how we can be helpful. And um, uh, you'll all see our statement on the budget coming out and, and our recommendations to the legislature. And thank you all for coming today. And thanks, Bob.